This episode is brought to you by Rick's Eyewear. Eyewear that inspires confidence. If you would like to buy some premium eyewear, sunglasses, blue light frames, prescription, head online now, rickseyewear.com.au and check it out. Caps has been Australia's home of headwear since 2012. From snapback to fitted, curved peak to flat peak, our hats will fit anyone and everyone. Since then, we've grown and evolved into the leaders of US sports apparel in Australia. Head online at caps.com.au and check it out. Righto, let's get into the show. All right, BT in the building. Welcome to Tommy Talks, great man. Oh, I'm looking forward to seeing how Tommy Talk works. <laughs> it works about just as well as the 30th that you threw for Jordan not long ago. How was the cleanup on that? I haven't seen you since. Oh, I'm over parties. Four boys, lots of parties, 21st. The youngest one, like he's 21st, we're sick of it. He's not getting the 21st. <laughs> so uh, we were just about over it. But the 30th cleanup, um, it wasn't the cleanup, it was what was going on within the party. <laughs> that was my concern. You let the DJ just go a little bit longer. I was begging you, just keep it going, Bruce. But you said, mate, I've got to got to wrap this show up, mate. It's getting too late. We said 11 o'clock shut off. Half past one's not a bad result <laughs> in the end after 13 uh, calls from the police. But anyway, it's all, it's all good. <laughs> now, mate, I've got a huge show today. We've got about, I don't know, an hour and 15 for the listeners. So just strap yourselves in. I'm, uh, I'm quite amazed. I didn't know a lot of things about your footy career that I should have, as we've known each other for probably 20 years, but I guess we'll start there um, before we move through everything. You know, now that you reflect on footy, it's a few mm. years ago, uh, what, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Uh, I was an average player that, um, that has become better since I retired because of the job that I do. You just sort of grow. You know, people think you're a really good player, but in actual fact, I was just an average player. So uh, that's probably the thing I think about footy. I think I'd sort of laugh at myself thinking people think that I'm some sort of a legend or something, but in actual fact, I was just a very ordinary player. You can't be that ordinary, though. This is why I'm, I'm staggered. Now, I didn't even know you won the Coleman, which is bizarre because I just mm. always knew you as the, you know, the, the BT, the commentator, Leon Davis and the Vangeline type mm. setup. You've won a Coleman, but mm. you've also kicked 100. We're going to get in later. So how can you call yourself just average? Surely you're hard on yourself. But see, 100 goals in, in the 80s was very common. Um, in fact, there wouldn't be a year go by that someone in the league didn't kick 100 goals in that period of time. So while we now look at it and go, oh, yeah, that's a real achievement and, you know, Coleman medal winners this uh, in this decade are, are kicking 60 goals, maybe just a couple more. So 100 seems a lot, but it wasn't because so much of the ball went through you as players, you know, probably 30% of every ball that came inside 50 went to the full forward. So mm. you had a had a real opportunity to contribute in, in a very, very big way. So uh, that's that's sort of what happened. So when you talk about full forwards back in the day, right, you're, t- you're telling me it was just you up forward, everyone get the fuck out of my way mm. and it's on my shoulders today and you'd have your, you know, your, your full pocket little crummers and that's that's literally the game plan. There was a little bit of that. There was, um, you, you definitely had to have an intimidation factor about you to scare all your little forwards out of the way and I was continually <laughs> saying, if you stand there, I am going to jump on you. I am going to run through you. So you move up the ground a bit and you're continually pushing anyone that was a threat in your team away from goals. Yeah. I remember saying to Dakes many, many times, 
stakes, play up the ground, mate. Get up the ground, you get up there. You know, so there was this continuous reshuffling. I remember we had a had a sort of a practice scrimmage one night at training, and there was this guy that uh, Mark Bayless, his name was. He came from Western Australia, and he was a really good player. And he was he said to me, "I'm going to take your position, right?" And that really um, churned in my guts a bit, and uh, I thought, "Oh." this guy. Anyway, that night we had a scrimmage and he was sort of hovering around the forward area in front of me and I had this opportunity to run and just ram the absolute clappers out of him and I did on this particular <laughs> night and I said, mate, get out of this forward line. So no, I really I really targeted him. So I, I looked at anyone that wanted my position, even on my team, as an, as, as an opponent. Um, that's what it was like. Whereas Together these days, it's it's really about doing it as a unit. Yeah, and well, that's where I'll start. I'll start with Richmond. That was one of the questions I wanted to ask with with Rochi up forward, one of the greatest mm. forwards of all time, and then you um, in your prime, obviously in '86, which we'll get to in a second. But how come you guys can't work or couldn't work like a Jeremy Cameron and Hawkins back in the day? Like you just spoke about a little bit how it was just a main man, but you're such guns. Yeah. How come you both couldn't just go down there and? Because we, because we didn't have the movement and the athleticism that they have today. You know, like you know, Jeremy Cameron could go and run, you know, 13, 14 Ks in a game. Um, so could Tom Hawkins in his prime. Well, we weren't that type of athlete. We, we couldn't do that. Three or four Ks a game would be the max for us. So I guess we didn't have the ability or, or the athleticism or the fitness to move around the forward as much. So therefore, it left two players, Roach and myself, in a very confined area together without a lot of movement. So we tried like hell, like we're really great mates and we were great mates right through that double-pronged attack that we tried at Richmond and we tried to make it work. I'm not sure whether Richmond gave it enough time to allow it to work, but we did it several times and we tried our guts out. As I say, we were both working together to try and make it work because we knew we could both play and that's what we wanted to do. Um, and, uh, you know, having a guy like Michael Roach, who's the greatest kick and great greatest mark I've ever seen play football um, alongside me would have been would have been great for a team outcome. But we just it, – it sort of worked on a few games, but it just wasn't consistent enough. And ultimately, is that why you just – you decided I'm going yep. to – I'm going to pack it up and be the main man yep. at the Pies? Roachie was a great player. I think he was a two-time common medalist. You know, I had to get out of his way basically because he was just too good a player not to be playing even though he had back issues at the time. So that was the – that was the inspiration in me moving on to Collingwood and, and seeking out someone that didn't have a full forward. Yeah. And yeah. Kevin Sheedy is well known, but back in the day, what was he like as your coach? Yeah, well, he was the he was the skills coach at Richmond when I was there and he was incredibly inventive. So you guys would take for granted now when someone handballs the ball and you hit it on top of the ball and it spins backwards, you just see that as a handball. But that was invented. I can remember the night. I can remember the week that Kevin Sheedy came down to training and said, guys, this is how we're going to handball from now on. Because prior to that, it was just this wobbly old thing that just came off the hand in any which way. But, you know, and then Sheedy said, no, we've got this rocket handball. It spins backwards. It'll be easier to mark. It's like the drop punt. This is how we're going to do it. And I remember he went all over Australia teaching that and then taught us to teach it as well. So it became very, very quickly the handball of choice to where now we don't even think about how it evolved. But that actually only evolved in the very early 80s. Yeah, it's amazing how yeah. much it, it did evolve. It was an incredible... Uh, innovator Sheeds, even just coming out of that player transition to where he was the PR guy at Richmond and then not far off coaching the Bombers. He was uh, he was just a great technician, a great thinker, um, a really deep thinker about the skills of the game. He was very big on both sides of the body, you know, very big on balance and poise and 
and the actual skill components. Yeah. And uh, who who were some of you mentioned Rochi, but who were some of the most influential people at Richmond at the time for you as a sixteen year old coming over from WA? Who were some people that you know threw you under the wing? Well, off the field, there's a guy by the name of Noel Judkins who was the best recruiter. So he was my he was my reason for being at Richmond at the time. He was fantastic. So it was great. I remember I had a girlfriend over in Perth and I used to use his phone to ring home and I think he had phone bills like eight or nine thousand dollar phone bills or something <laughs> so I'd be on the phone for literally a day um so yeah so he he was really good and there were guys like Jimmy Jess who were who were just compra- great companions a guy by the name of Stephen Perry who's a really yep. great friend of mine we arrived there basically at the same time um Dale Waitman uh, Roachie as I said before there were there were so many good people I I think other than the 1990 premiership, I think the Richmond period that I was there from 80 to 84 had the had the greatest synergy for camaraderie that I'd experienced in any sort of team involvement. It was just unbelievable. Arriving from Perth as a 16-year-old kid to, to Richmond, who had just come off, you probably wouldn't be aware of this, Tommy, but had just come off a decade of dominance in the 70s where they won a couple of premierships. In the late 60s, they won a couple of premierships. So all of a sudden, there's this sort of 20-year period where they were highly successful. And when you're highly successful, that grows legends all around the place, whether they be the the property steward in Dusty O'Brien or whether they be the absolute superstar in Michael Green. Um, so it, walking into that place was just like walking into a museum of huge names. Yeah, it's, it's and for a bloke that's 16 coming from yeah. WA, surely that's yeah. a bit of a shock to the system. It was a real shock to the system. I mean, I was really homesick, but to one minute be sitting home watching the winners in Western Australia and seeing, you know, a, a Kevin Sheedy or uh, whoever else, um, I'm just trying to think of some other names, other great names that were there, but Dale Waitman, these sort of players, to be sitting home watching them one minute on the on the winners and have never really been out of West Australia as a country kid, to all of a sudden being in the same photo as them effectively yeah. was just bloody mind-boggling. You know, I just you had to pinch yourself all the time. And as a result, as a young kid that had come over and started an apprenticeship and knew no one over here, what I did was I used the footy club as my home. I was living in South Yarra. They'd billeted me out with an older lady there, Mrs. Reed. She was fantastic. And I was living in I was living in South Yarra, but I spent all of my time at the footy club. So while I trained with the under nineteens, I went and trained with the with the seniors and reserves as well. I went and did the weights with Mick Malthouse and and Emmett Dunn and yeah. all of these sort of guys because I just wanted to be around the place. Some big names there when you yeah. mention it. Like it's a great way to start your, your Bartlett. Your Bartlett. Yeah, he's one Kevin Bartlett's one mm. that bring, uh, brings brings um a name to He was a ripper, yeah. He was a ripper, and he's uh, he's was he does he still got the games record? Is he one of the games record? At leagues? Richmond, he has. Richmond, he, he's yeah. one of the four hundred game players. So he's yeah. one of four. I think it's one of four guys that have played four hundred games. I think he played four hundred three KB, and he was uh, he was he was a ripper. He um, he was a great player. I haven't seen many highlights, but I've heard that's uh, that just shows you the era there, Briss. But um, look, I want to talk about some of the before we go to the pies because. Look, the top three dummy spits. I've been on YouTube all last night and it's my favorite segment. I've seen your reactions. You don't give it much. Obviously, you don't like watching it. It's, um, but it is hilarious. And it's, I think it's what puts bums on seats at footy. You know, like if I was to watch that now, I think there'd be, you know, no disrespect to the lower level teams, but I reckon you'd double the attendance because it's just, it's, it's fanatical. Well, you guys have become so 
boring. <laughs> I agree, mate. I, I mean, agree. Your generation is just full of boredom. Well, we're not allowed to do anything. What do you do for laughs? Well, I mean, yeah, 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 but you have created the rules. Well, uh, you, 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 your generation has created this vortex of, of. Um, of averageness, if there's <laughs> such a word, in 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 allowing your personality to to perspire and uh, it's evolve. you folks in the media. You do one thing like Ginevan and fire the joint up, and it's on the news, and you're not allowed to do it again. He's putting out, you know, what do they put out letters to say sorry because he's been on TikTok <laughs> doing a dance. I mean, give me his foul. The poor fella's kicking for a week. He still can't do it. But, <laughs> yeah, um, that's true. The dummies fits now. I mean, can you imagine some of the shit that you used to do? And it was on TV right now. Just mm. not even the not even the bad ones. When I say bad, I'll get to me top three right now. Let's start with me number one. It's Richmond, the fist and the NFL throwback to the player. Just just the umpire. When you're going hard at the umpire, what, what are you well, saying? Well, you were allowed to threaten the umpires in those days. <laughs> I know where you live. I'm, <laughs> I'm coming to get you. So, you know, it just happened and, and it was – yeah, yeah, it was sort of acceptable, you know, and it was acceptable in the in the um, in the boundary of football and 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 playing a game. Outside that, it definitely wasn't. And you know, despite what you see on the TV in those clips, you would end up having a beer with that umpire after the game and having a laugh with yeah, him. And, yeah, and say and, you cost me a couple of goals. Yeah, or something. yeah, and they'd take it in. Sometimes they'd take it in the right spirit. <laughs> <laughs> What about this? the second one? My favourite is the Pies versus Dons. I think it's Billy Duckworth. You've done the dummies fit and chucked him in the headlock and then said, oh, I didn't do anything. And then the team's come up. I think it was <laughs> yeah. Danaher grabbed you and threw you on the ground yeah, well, and you started him and then the clip cuts. I think he was trying to walk through our uh, our our huddle at quarter time or three quarter time or something. I can't remember now. But And he'd given me a hard day. Bill Duckworth was always a hard opponent. So I was always angry with him because I knew I was going to have a shit day <laughs> when I played on Bill Duckworth. He was such a... Um, he was like me. He was aggressive and I wouldn't say he was vicious, but he was extremely aggressive. And that's what I wanted to be. So I wanted to play on, you know, soft, fluffy players. I didn't want to play on aggressive players. So when you played on someone like him or Danny Hughes, it always it always ended up in a, in a shit fight. Oh, I can imagine you would have loved eating up the softies. And then <laughs> this is my personal favourite, the Pies versus the Saints. Was that... They said Mickey Turner on the on the footage. I'm not sure if it – I don't think it was. I don't know. You'd know. But anyway, BT marks it. He squeezed Mick Turner's head, they said. He double fist pumps, celebrates before even having a shot. So you've, you haven't, you've just marked the ball. You've gone up to your opponent and you've pretty much told him you've already slotted it. You've then t- done the single arm celebration to the crowd before. before pointed you, to the scoreboard. Pointed to the scoreboard. So you haven't even had a set shot yet. You go back off your mark and you kick a point yeah, yeah. and then you go straight back up to the bloke and then deck him yeah. <laughs> and strangle him again. Yeah, and I pointed to the scoreboard. That was embarrassing that day because I shouldn't have done that. That was Steve Turner, by the way. Steve Turner, that's I right. I think he's now a lawyer somewhere. I knew so. it wasn't Mick because Mick's the great man from uh, yeah. Geelong Footy Factory that we know down there at Lawn, but I'm Steve pro- Turner. Yeah, I'm probably facing some sort of uh, writ <laughs> at some stage. But, yeah, and that my nose, which has sort of got a, a big chunk missing out of it, that was from that game. You may have noticed my nose was bleeding at that particular time, and that was from that guy in that particular game. So I remember it well. Um, I didn't mind celebrating before I kicked the goal I because I, I'd won the opportunity to kick the 
goal, and that was enough to celebrate over. But uh, pointing to the scoreboard and behaving like I did, that was at Victoria Park as well. So we were very friendly. You know, the suburban warfare at these sort of um, inner suburban grounds was just unbelievable. The vibe, it, it was probably a little bit like people would imagine English soccer to be mm. 10 years ago before they built the big stadiums. It was just such a buzz walking into a place like Victoria Park or Princess Park or, you know, out there at Essendon. It was um, Windy Hill. It was just a really great vibe, full of full of friends. And being a full forward in the social rooms afterwards, it must wow. have been, I must yeah, have been It was on. <laughs> it was been. on. Up to the third floor we'd go, the famous third floor <laughs> social at um, Collingwood. It was, you know, I come from two clubs that had two rippers. I remember a Friday night in, in when I was at Richmond and the Richmond disco was the biggest thing in town. Like there was nothing else big. What, what's the biggest nightclub in town these days? Oh, geez, I'll give Bar Bambi a shout out. I don't okay. know. I'm well, probably electric. Electric goes off uh, these days. <laughs> Richmond would have eaten both of those up in terms of volume of people that would get there and fun that was had. So, you know, it was great. I remember a mate of mine turned up um, unannounced one Friday uh, from Western Australia and he said, oh, I've got to go to the Richmond Disco. And I said, well, I'm playing tomorrow. We're playing St Kilda tomorrow down at Moorabbin. And he said, oh, yeah, but, you know, I can't get in. There's a queue, a queue a mile long. And I said, listen, I'll take you down. We'll we'll get you in. We'll bypass the queue and then I'll leave and come home. Anyway, I got him in about midnight. You know, it's the sort of place where you leave your guns at the door. There were a lot of, you know, crime figures in that there as well, which we weren't really that aware of, but there were. And anyway, I got him and I said, look, mate, I'll, I'll have one water with you and then I'm I'm heading off. I've got to go. If, I, if I'm seen here, I'm in big trouble. Anyway, I, I left at 4 a.m. absolutely <laughs> blotto and played that next day on the Saturday down at Rabin. I think I kicked four or five, did pretty well. But, um, yeah, I got sucked in that night. But that was a great place. So the Richmond Disco. And then you went to Collingwood and it was like – Collingwood never won anything. They always made the grand final, and I could see why, because it was like Hollywood on the third floor. You go up there, and they're all dressed up to the hilt, and, you know, there'd be people tapping you on the shoulders, and you just had this, you know, smorgasbord of opportunity. And, um, <laughs> Buffet all you can eat. Yeah, it was like, you know, it was unbelievable as a young player there. And I, I remember one night I was up there, and I thought I did pretty well, and I was, you know, you lose control of who you are, and I was, I was way ahead of myself. And uh, I was, you know, spooning around up there, and you know, talking to this person and that person. Anyway, a bit of a, a bit of an angry sort of dispute erupted with a supporter who thought that I hadn't played that well that day or hadn't got in the right spot, and you know, we're sort of shaping up to each other. And and Banksy, who was, you know, my teammate at the time and who was a real goer and knew everyone in town, was the, the voice of experience. You know, he come up and he sort of just tapped me on the on the leg and said, "Let this one go, mate." And I and he hustled me over to the corner. I said, "Why did you get in the way?" that one. He said, that guy's Mick Gatto. Oh. Stay, out, stay, stay out of that one there. So Imagine you had a game of left, right, good night. Yeah. Gee whiz. So that was my introduction to Mick. That's great. So there's some of those stories that are just brilliant. That's what we live for. So those places were full of full of, you know, most of those guys are dead now. You know, the, the, like underbelly figures like the- Yeah. The, the, the All those nightclubs in those particular times were full of the guys that have probably most of them have passed did they away. Run, did they run them? Um, I, I, I don't know what their involvement, they didn't own them or run them, but they may have run them in another sense. Yeah. Drugs weren't that prevalent then, you see. So, you know, m maybe a bit of dope or something might've been around in those particular days, but certainly not the drugs of today. So it was more about beer. So you didn't sort of see them. They just sort of blended in, mm. but apparently they were there. That's funny. Well, geez, I'm glad your teammate had you back that day. <laughs> Cause that could have ended nasty. Yes. Collingwood days. Um, so you've left the you've left uh, the famous club Richmond and you've gone to the you know the Pies. 
We'll skip straight to uh, 1986. There's, uh, you've kicked your 100th goal. It's well publicised. You, you're injured. You had the sore groin. But there is a bit of a story to this, and it leans with the umpires. I'd love you to elaborate. Oh, look, it's a long story, Tommy. I don't know whether we've got time to do it all. But look, it, it, Coleman medals, you know, not many people win. You know, one person a year wins the Coleman. Uh, often it's harder to win the Brownlow because, you know, three people can win the Brownlow when they draw, not, not so much in the Coleman. It's never happened. So, look, here I was. It was the last game of the year, and we were playing St Kilda at Waverley. I was on 98 goals. I had two goals to kick to become the fourth player in Collingwood's history to kick 100 goals, which was, you know, a bit of a bit of a individual, head a little bit of a, a little bit of an individual head wobble <laughs> sort of. Uh, how good am I going? Words the top four. Um, but from the team point of view, it didn't even register on the Richter scale, you know, because it was all about having to win that game to make finals. And anyway, so I went into that game playing on Danny Frawley, my great mate. Um, the late Danny Frawley, and I kicked the first goal inside the first couple of minutes, but in doing so, I, and I was on 99 goals, I'd strained my groin. Anyway, quarter time came, and Lee Matthews came up to me, and this is absolutely as true as I sit here. He said to me, what's wrong with you? I said, I've done my groin, and I knew that I'd be out for four or five weeks with a groin injury, wouldn't take part in the final. So all of a sudden, I'm thinking about me. I'm not thinking one <laughs> bit about the team. I said, Lee, I, you know, you've know, you got to give me five minutes in the second quarter to kick the 100th goal and become the fourth player in Collingwood's history to kick 100 goals. He said, Brian, we've got to win the game. I said, Lee, I've got to kick the goal. <laughs> anyway, we argued and argued and argued, and he said, look, I'll give you a couple of minutes, then I'll send the runner out to take you off. Uh, Lee Matthews would never buckle on those sort of things now, like when you think about it. Anyway, he sent me out there, and as I was walking out to my position, the umpire approached me. Now, the umpire was a guy by the name of Peter Cameron, who was the brother-in-law of our then vice captain and my mate, David Cloak. And he said, just stay in front of Frawley. We know what's wrong with you. We'll look after you. And I thought, this is fantastic. <laughs> he knows I've got the injury. So down I go, um, balls on centre wing about a kick and a halfway. Umpire Peter Cameron, the brother-in-law of David Cloak, vice, our vice captain, a good mate of mine, blows his whistle, says free kick downfield to Taylor. Those downfield thought something happened upfield. Those upfield thought something happened downfield. No one knew. I'm there 30 metres out directly in front, about to become the fourth player in Collingwood's history to kick 100 goals, win the Coleman medal as well. And I kicked it out of bounds on the full. <laughs> and I thought, then the runners come up to me and I'd just given him a sort of half coat hanger just into the <laughs> jaw to get rid of him for another moment. And you wouldn't believe it. 30 seconds later, identical thing, opposite wing this time at Waverley, out of wing at Waverley, umpire Peter Cameron, the brother-in-law David Cloakow, my mate and vice-captain, blows his whistle again, says free kick downfield to Taylor. I kicked the goal, um, and I know you want to applaud at the moment, Tommy, but don't, because we, w we went into the rooms after the games and had drinks with the umpires in those days, and I said to umpire Peter Cameron, who, remember, was the brother-in-law of David Cloak, our vice-captain, my good mate, and I said, Pete, in 10 years, you haven't given me one free kick. Why in one quarter did you give me two free kicks? He said, Taylor, at the start of the year, was 80 to 1 to kick 100 goals. He said, I had 10 bucks on you. <laughs> so that's that's how I won the, the Coleman medal and became the fourth player in Collingwood's history to kick 100 goals. That is just yeah. a great story. And that is true. It, it And if you spoke to Peter Cameron about that now, he would tell the story the same way. It was just, that was the relationship we had with the umpires. They would help you out if they knew and or, or if there was a ticky touch would or you're having a bad day, it's almost like they were tapping you on the back, wanting you to play well, you know. They weren't cheating to get the result in any particular direction. They were just worried about you as an individual to try and help yeah. you along. They were great. I remember Glenn James, our famous Indigenous umpire. What a great guy he was during the game. You could say anything to him. You could have a chat with him. You could talk about things and he'd have a decent conversation with you. You know, it was it was a really good vibe. Yeah, it's like genuine mates on the field. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then you'd obviously have a few beers yeah. with him afterwards. Yeah.
Man, that's an incredible story. I don't mm. know if uh, I didn't know it was that good. I know <laughs> that I got some mail just said, ask the big fella about that one. So do you think with that, the great man that was umpiring the game that you would have got the 100? I don't think so. No, I don't think because I got two free kicks that perhaps I shouldn't have got. Um, and I've looked at the, them on replay since, and because the ball's up the ground, it's hard to see what actually happened. But um, no, I don't think I would have got there without it. Did you buy him a so, beer after the game? Absolutely, I did. <laughs> I'm forever indebted. I think, yeah, like I said, doing my research, 21 people alive have uh, got kicked 100, and yeah. there's only 28 or 7 that have ever done it. So, As you know, I said, yeah. every year there's a Brownlow winner, mate, but <laughs> Coleman, Coleman's are hard to win. Oh, Jeremy Coleman. You know, believe. the Coleman medal is almost identical looking to the Brownlow medal. Oh, I wouldn't know, mate. I've never so. seen either. <laughs> <laughs> Where is your Coleman medal, by the way? That's interesting. It's, it's at home. Um, I lost it there for a couple of years. I thought someone had stolen it one of these parties that the boys have um, <laughs> uh, might have been you Tommy I don't know oh, someone mate. had knocked <laughs> it off anyway around. I found it but it is one of those things that's a, it's a, it's a strange thing to have but I at the time I didn't think anything of it but now you retire and you go what did I get out of footy well I didn't get a premiership which is ultimately what I was chasing you know you, these little individual trinkets they, they're, mm. they're quite healthy in oh mate they do and it helps the media which we'll get yeah, in later but it, it seems like you've got to be a big full forward big well, you've power got to, they've got to be able to put something on the bottom of the screen to say you won something you can't, be, a, you can't be an 80 <laughs> something game <laughs> no, wingman can you you're right. not going to get a kick are you no well that's that's 100% right <laughs> um, so your time at the Pies um, you know 1990 was your last year mm. um, do you want to talk to us a little bit about how that ended? And I want to, I've got a photo here that I'll, I'll share. I've got this, I've got a lot of, uh, I've mm. got a little, uh, it's, it's your book that you, that you wrote, Yep. Um, which we've got there. And for people listening, it's called Black and White, The Taylor Diaries, an uncensored explosive account that reveals the secrets behind Australia's most famous football club, Collingwood. When did you start writing that book at Collingwood? So this is one of my... This is probably my only regret in footy, um, yeah. that I got involved in writing this book. Um, now, what happened was it, it was the year that Collingwood won in 1990, of course, and the Herald Sun had approached me um, at the start of the year to do a bit of a diary on the year, uh, not knowing what would happen in the end and that Collingwood would win the premiership. And we got to the finals and we all of a sudden realised Collingwood had a really good chance of winning. And so that diary uh, that I had agreed to do with the Herald Sun went went a bit bigger than diary and became a book because of obviously what was going to happen. And so the information was gathered during the year, but never released until after they'd run and won the grand final. So I feel secure and good away that I didn't give away any of the in-house IP that I should have because it was actually after the grand final had been won. But it did not probably sit well with me when I sit back and reflect and say, you know, I was gathering this information out of team meetings or whatever and putting it into a diary to be released at the end of the grand final. That probably, when I when I sit back and look at that, I go, that was not the right thing to do. And so that's why it's it's one of my great regrets. But the, I guess the positive about it, it wasn't released until after the grand final. It did sell 100,000 100, copies or something. <laughs> we made a shitload of money out of it and I didn't play. So <laughs> yeah. it's okay. It's bad, yeah. Exactly right, and why? I mean, why didn't you play? Because I—that's that, something that I, again, I'm a, as I was studying you, and like I said to you, I learn a fair bit. You've only, you know, 1986, you've kicked a hundred. You're the Coleman Medal. 1990, you're, you're, you know, you're a little bit banged up. Should have you played? Look, had bad knee. I think I'd done my ankle earlier that year. It struggled to play games. I think I only might have played about a half a dozen games in the in the whole year. So really, I wasn't. 
even though I was playing well in the reserves at the time, I played in the drawn qualifying final against the West Coast Eagles um, out at Waverley. Didn't uh, just play, mind you. You got the ass, but then they said, here, come back on, and then you kicked the goals to put them in yeah. the, into the draw. Well, it was interesting because Gubby Allen and Lee Matthews said to me in the week leading up to the finals that they would play me at the MCG, but they wouldn't play me at Waverley because of the bigger expanses at Waverley. The MCG was a little bit more confined. So... It, it was actually the opposite. Yes, they yes. played me at Waverley and didn't play me at the MCG. So I played in that drawn qualifying final. In fact, in the first quarter of that game against West Coast, I think I'd had four or five shots for goal. So I was getting plenty of the plenty of the footy, and I felt really good about the way I was playing. I just wasn't kicking well. Quarter time came, and he said, you're off, and I didn't get back on until the last quarter. So I was a little bit shocked by that, but I could see the writing on the wall as to why they were doing it. Um, so, you know, to get the opportunity to come back on in the last quarter when the game was gone, I think we we're 14 points down or something, and we were gone. Collingwood weren't going to play any further part. And to come back on um, and kick a couple of goals, and Dakes kicked that incredible goal as well, um, which helped us to get that draw in the end. We were lucky to get the draw, and then ultimately next week they went on and absolutely thrashed the Eagles. So, yeah, so the book was – I'm sure the book was part of why I didn't play that whole final series. I haven't obviously read the book. What's in the book? What is so? What what is it that pissed everyone off? You, you, why do you regret writing the book? You would look at it now, and it probably wouldn't. You would think there's nothing of it. Um, you know, because tactics in those days weren't as big as they are now. The game wasn't as pre-planned as it is now. So you know, you'd look at it and say, "Oh, what are you worried about?" But I guess it was just the the um, the, the 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 trust thing yeah. between someone sitting there. And players didn't quite understand, yes, I was writing a diary, but no, it wasn't going to be exposed until after you'd played and won. Um, and they didn't quite get that. And I remember I was confronted one night at training by Tony Shaw and he grabbed me around the neck and said, you know, what are you writing about? And, all that. and I think, don't worry, Shaw, this is not coming out and, you know, you won't be affected in any way. This will show Collingwood in a really good light, which it does. But I also knew about books. One thing I knew about books, and John Anderson, who wrote this with me as a senior sporting journo, one of the most senior sporting journos in the history of the game, um, you know, if you don't say something in the book, it doesn't sell. If you don't have something that's explosive, it won't sell. Do not write a book, Tommy, if you're just going to write about Tommy Sheridan <laughs> and you say nothing, uh, which is a lot of what you guys in this modern era do. You say nothing. You are so beige and benign <laughs> and boring. And and so I knew that if, you, if you're going to go to the trouble writing a book, say something. What, say what you believe. What is the something that you said in there? Oh, I can't the, remember. There, there was, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, verbatim um, tribunal stories and, and what I'd said at the tribunal. There was uh, there was stuff about how Lee Matthews was designing the team to win the grand final. There was stuff about players that were injured uh, that no one knew about, but once again, didn't get released, didn't matter. Yeah. So it was just the background of, say, Darren Mullane breaking his thumb and how much pain he went through to eventually get there. You're kind of ahead of your, ahead of your game. Yeah, you know, it like, was. It would be seen as nothing now. This yeah. would be seen as quite normal now. And players would would accept that sort of thing. You are quite creative, so it's you. you I mean, it's yeah. It's funny that you look back and you still do regret it. But yeah, it's mm. kind of like. Do you reckon? Is there any? Well, this is my next one. Is there anyone that you played with that is still pissed off by this? I don't know. That's a question you'd have to ask them. But I did. I, I go to all of the reunions. Um, for that particular year. We had one last week, in fact, and, uh, you know, I get on well with all of the guys there. I think for me, I'd moved on really quickly because I'd found another career in the media. Perhaps a lot of the guys that didn't find careers in football or in the media might have struggled with it 
for a little bit, and it did feel very uncomfortable in the first couple of years after. But since then, I, you know, I think people can see that I've moved on now, and you know, I uh, probably realised I, I did the wrong thing. But I did many good things for Collingwood in that period of time I was there as well. And a raging success, a hundred thousand coffees. I mean, yeah. at least at so, least you get a little bit of a kicker. Yeah, What's the go. split there with uh, Johnny and is it John Anderson? You yeah, just 50, 50. 50, 50. straight down the idea. So how does deal. it work? Just quickly on a book, do you just talk to him and he just writes? Yeah, so I'd go into the Herald Sun on a particular day each week and uh, we'd sit there for an hour and I'd tell him what's happened that week. And he'd just write. And he'd just write away and away it would go. It was a really easy thing to do. So, But uh, he always, I can always remember him saying, look, mate, uh, you know, I've worked in papers for 30 years. If you don't have something in the story that people want to read, they aren't going to read it. Mm. So he said, don't go coming here on a Monday and telling me stuff that really is, is, yeah. is beige and no no fun. It's a great career, mate. And this is where we we, we work into post um, footy mm. career. I've got plum. Is plumbing? Were you? A, I was a plumber. You yes. were a plumber because I got a funny story about the plumbing. How long were you? Because I've got Paran Footy Club and I got plumbing, and then we've got the media. So how did it all work? Where, what were you, were you doing it all at once? Or what? at one stage I was. So Collingwood, uh, Collingwood, Richmond. I was a plumber. And then at, towards the end of the Collingwood days, um, I got the opportunity in media. So in the last year, probably on the back of writing that book that we spoke about, gave me a bit more profile for people to want to, you know, tune in. So I, I started the media at that particular time. But I had worked as a plumber all through my footy career. From the day that I arrived in Victoria from Western Australia as a 16-year-old kid, I arrived on the Friday. Richmond said, what job do you want to do? I said, oh, strangely, I said, I want to be a plumber. They, they got me a job with a, a former player that was a plumber in, in Paran uh, around the Greville Street area. And so Bobby Gill, he was a fantastic guy, played in the seconds at Richmond. And, uh, you know, I, I remember that very first day I arrived at, at work. It was about 7 a.m. in the morning on the Monday. You remember, I'm a, I'm a wide-eyed country kid that's never been out of the state. <laughs> I arrive at work. He says, jump in that van. You're going to do a sewer blockage with that man there. And I said, okay. Jumped in the van. Off we go. Drove down to St Kilda Road. And, you know, I'd, Melbourne was a big place for me. And we arrived at St Kilda Road and there's all these, you know, the colour lights, like when you're having a party, all the globes, <laughs> like spanning over about 50 units. And I'm thinking, what a big party this is. This is... <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. And we're there to do the sewer blockage and not knowing t- that this was a bunch of 50 massage parlours <laughs> that, um, that that my boss had owned. And anyway, there was a big sewerage pit out the back in the car park in the in where, where all the girls that serviced those um, uh, parlours were. And my boss said to me, look, climb down about 12 foot into the pit, shove this rod up the pipe and when you hear the gurgling, get the hell out of there as fast as you can. And so I did that and I forgot to get out quick enough. Anyway, I was covered up to my chest in the night's taking, so oh. it wasn't great. <laughs> he sent me in a taxi back to work. and um, The night's taking was a great that was uh, That was my first experience working as a human being and as a plumber and in this foreign state <laughs> called Victoria and uh, went on and had had a great time working around the – I worked the inner suburbs, so I did, you know, Turak, Paran, yeah. South Yarra, Richmond, um, the city. We worked and did maintenance in all of those areas. So, you know, some of the buildings we worked in, uh, there was a, a house sold in St George's Terrace just recently for about $30 million or something. Well, we used to work in that particular house all the time. It was a great experience. Yeah. 
yeah, it would have been great. So did mm. you get back in the van? Or you made, no, surely mate, you made your walk home. No, he, ju- he rang a taxi and said, you're going back in the taxi. Oh, the poor taxi You, you stink that much. <laughs> get the hell out of here, into the taxi, back to work. And imagine they, the taxi driver just getting you with a- <laughs> And then the boss got back there and he hot washed me off. I remember he said, strip off, and he sort of hot washed me from head to toe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is an experience. And then, look, I've got a, I've got a story here from Ryan. He reckons back in the day that- um, I mean, you'd be able to tell it better, but it's to do with your apprentice and the day that he's clipped his finger and you said, mate, don't worry about that. Just get back to work and we'll sort that one later. Well, we were doing, we're replacing a um, a gutter, a roof gutter, a a box gutter um, at a a place in Hawthorne and the big black clouds were lurking from the west and it was going to piss down (laughs) at any moment. And if it rained while we had this box gutter out, this house was going to be destroyed and I was going to be in a lot of trouble. And we were only within about half an hour of getting this box gutter weatherproof um and anyway uh, you know in the in the light of wanting to hurry i'm pushing the box gutter and the my apprentice is up the other end of the gutter about six meters away and he's got his finger on the end of the gutter and they're pushing it towards the brick wall the gutter you know it's got to get close to the brick wall anyway we pu- i pushed it and all of a sudden it just sort of gave and it went and he had his finger there and it cut his finger off you know part of his finger off at the other end and i had a look at it and i thought oh shit this is no good but I- i'm also looking at the clouds going <laughs> It's going to piss down here very, very shortly. And he's going, ah! I say, mate, grow up. Here's a, here's a towel. Gave him this dirty old towel that I'd unblocked a sewer with. And I said, wrap that around your finger, mate. Stop the bleeding and, and just get on with it. We've got to get this roof cutter in. Anyway, he, he begrudgingly sort of looks at me like I'm some sort of bloody lunatic. And um, I put the gutter in and got it all sealed up. And, and I said, look, mate, you better go off and you know see your GP. And anyway, he went to St. Vincent's and had uh, microsurgery that night on his, to sew his finger had back his on. arm amputated yeah. because of the old feces. So that was a bit of an issue. That is a very funny story, mate. And the, uh, the famous van stories, the boys... Well, Ryan reckons as a kid, he used to have, you had the kids behind while you're jump starting the car yep. down the hill. I think it was the Hawthorne days he might yeah. have mentioned. What, I, I lived on a van? I lived on a hill in Hawthorne and this van, you know, I just, I don't know why I didn't buy a new van. Maybe I didn't have the money. That's probably why. So I had this old shitty van, had Brian Taylor plumbing on it and a magpie, that sort of <laughs> the thing. The big magpie on the whack as whenever well. Whenever we finished work, I had to park it in a direction that was on top of the hill. So the next morning when we went, I could get the apprentice to push the van and we'd jumpstart it going down the hill because I couldn't afford the battery, right? New battery in the thing. So that was that was the way we got the day off, um, push-starting the van That's every morning. And I'd take the kids to school and they were that embarrassed to be in the Brian Taylor plumbing van, you know. <laughs> I'd get in there and uh, it wasn't wasn't a good look for The them. big pie driving around yes. the streets. I mean, yeah. a bit like the van we're in today. We just spoke about that off air that we don't want to brand it too much. I remember might... it was such a famous van that in the end, Dennis Banks, when I finished the plumbing, he said, can I buy the van off you? I said, yeah, mate. And, and he drove around, you know, <laughs> even though he wasn't a plumber or anything, with the Brian Taylor plumbing van for years. <laughs> That's great. What'd you sell it to? Would you flog it for him? Oh, or I think you... I got 500 for it or something. Oh, that is brilliant. And then the famous Paran Footy Club. I mean, the funny stories don't stop, which I love, but you, there's one thing that we, um, that I found out as well, that you coach, player coached until mm-hmm. your knee blew out. Um, I believe uh, yeah. he kicked I think 16 and 9 in the first two games it's set online but Paran Football Club um, you coach some of the most successful businessmen and entrepreneurs you know Australia's ever seen they're all over the globe now there's about five I think who are some of these people that you were coaching that have now kicked on with their careers uh, obviously away from football uh, well Mark Evans uh, comes to mind I can't remember them all but Mark Evans who's the CEO of Gold Coast at the moment worked at the AFL 
Um, he was who was one. I'm just trying to think who were the others. The uh, hairdresser, I believe, in New York. Oh yeah, Rod Cutler, uh, who was a, a, a great young man. He went on to become one of the most famous, and is one of the most famous hairdressers in the world in New York. He cuts, uh, you know, Oprah Winfrey and all of these absolute celebs. I remember I went over to Soho in New York and visited his salon one day, and I went into the salon and I didn't realise, you know, they send you off into another. You get a, you get your own cubicle that you know you can go and you know, just sort of put your bag down and get dressed if you want it. And they can put you in another sort of, you know, sort of a you know, outfit, outfit yep. you know, just to cut your hair. It's all bullshit. But anyway, <laughs> I went in and he had about 20 bloody hairdressers working there. And, you know, the place was absolutely buzzing. And, uh, you know, he said, oh, Brian, before you sit down and uh, do your hair, I want you to come and meet some of my clients around here. He took me around and there was um, – Oh, what was his name? Richard Butler. You wouldn't remember him, but he had the biggest job in the world at one stage. The U.S. government, uh, the president had appointed him. Had appointed him uh, the uh, mass, uh, the mass, uh, mass weapons um, inspector. So he would go to Iraq and Iran, and he was the only Westerner that was allowed to go in and inspect their nuclear arsenal to make sure it wasn't. They weren't doing anything incorrect. Richard Butler, his name was, and he introduced me in. And I said, G'day, Richard. How you going? <laughs> he handed me a card and it said, Nuclear Weapons Inspector. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. And then there was this other guy at the table here, and he said, G'day, my name's AJ Foyt. I'm a NASCAR driver. And, uh, you know, good on you, AJ. And around we go, and, and we met. And then there was this girl there. You'd know the name of this girl. She's out of New Zealand, great singer. Um, oh, young girl, a lord. Lord, yep. Lord, what was that? The, what oh, was I know it. Yeah, I'm yeah, not, yeah. I'm not the biggest. I'm not going to look you in the eye and tell you that I'm all She's over it. sitting there having the twirls done and, g'day, Brian, how are you going? And and then there was uh, 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 Gloria Estefan was there and, you know, <laughs> her husband and all these celebs. It was just absolutely unbelievable. Anyway, in the end, he said, listen, mate, um, he must have been short on a few people to come to his birthday day. He said, I'm having my 50th birthday tonight. <laughs> it might have been his 40th. I can't remember. Do you want to come? And I said, look, I've got the whole family. There's six of us. He said, bring the whole lot. It'd be fantastic night. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we got there and there's this bloody lavish thing. You turn up in the limos and they're all parked out the front. Up you go to this special room and they're all up there and they're sipping verve and the whole thing and it's very <laughs> nice. And then he gets up to make a speech and he said, I'd like to welcome my friend Brian Taylor from Australia because <laughs> I was the only, I was the unusual thing there. Everyone else was boring. But there were big bankers there worth hundreds of millions. It was a big shebang. And um, anyway, uh, you know, uh, you know, Harrison was there and he was talking to uh, Gloria Estefan, who was one of the biggest acts in the world at the time. And he didn't know who he was talking to. He had no idea that she was of anyone that uh, was in that entertainment industry. And I remember at the end of the night, my wife, who was a very, she's very straight down the line, very Dull. proper, very sexy lady. Um, she looks great and the whole thing. And I remember at the end of the night, because she'd been drinking this wine that she didn't agree with her. It was shit house. Anyway, the guy said, look, we've got the special VIP party going on up stairs now so we'll whip you up there and we were first to arrive and we got the nice couch and <laughs> Tanya's sort of sitting there and then everyone arrives and I, I, I looked over at my wife and I saw her sort of with her hand to her mouth and I thought what the hell is she doing anyway she's spewing in her hand <laughs> right and 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 she's gone and I've looked at her and gone you know what are you doing <laughs> And she's just and she's just put the spew sort of under the under the cushion, you know. Under she's the, just going. And anyway, Rod, Rod Cutler, the hairdresser, she's gonna hate this. Rod Cutler, the hairdresser, had seen all this and gone. 
Well, Jesus, who, who, the, who the fuck have I invited here to this party? These wild Australians are just going crazy in my VIP room. Anyway, he came out, he said, I think it's time for you to leave now, you Australians. And I walked out, you know, I had, had the kids with me, I had my sister with me. And we, you know, we'd all dressed in jeans and everyone else's bloody Tuxedos. Because you know, we were there on a holiday, not there to go to a ball, but it was one of the great nights. So here was another one out of there. I can't remember the other names, but there were yeah. lots of... Was there anyone else that you can remember, Harrison? Sam Pang was uh, there, of course. He was a fantastic uh, um, guy and, and just an average player. But um, <laughs> Pangy was there. There were, there were a whole host of these guys that have gone on and been um, elite in other areas of their life and, and their jobs, which was which was really fulfilling. That is funny. What was Sam Pang like as a footballer? Sam Pang was a, a, um, a stodgy, uh, back pocket sort of uh, Stay in the back pocket, Sam type player. <laughs> he wasn't someone Play that. Play from you, behind and just yeah. fist from behind. No, he was, I played 19s with him. Oh, not 19s, but I played reserves with him at Colling as well. Two flags at Paran? No, no flags no at flags. Paran. Two prelim finals. Two prelims. And we lost them both, yep. Geez, that's a bit of a stitch mm. up for me there. Yep. Now, this is, a, this is my favourite. True or false? Mm. Actually, it's not a grand final, but before a game. BT concealed a miniature microphone in the opposing team meeting room in order to listen to their whole pre-game strategy and game plan to get the upper hand. Essentially, it's called bugging the opposition change rooms. Is that true or false? Well, this is a touchy story, Tom, but, you know, um, we did get information that we shouldn't have got on that particular day. I will say that, but, um, yeah, it was a... It was one of those things that I probably shouldn't have done, but we got there early and we, we did have a couple of electronics experts in our team and uh, we managed to we managed to secure a good briefing on what was going on. So let's let's put it that way. So That is unbelievable. No, uh, another silly thing. That is oh mate, I think that's fantastic. How does well, that could even you work? imagine if that happened in the oh, oval? If someone cheated another person's rooms. But back in the day, you know, what Paran Footy Club, is it that serious? I no, think that's I think not, that stuff's just grass. Yeah, it's like it's not that serious. How do you do that, by the way? Like how did you just do that? It'd be good to share some light on how that works. Well, Tommy, I didn't <laughs> say I've actually done it, but uh, <laughs> I'm assuming what happened was they put a bug in the room <laughs> and it was voice activated and uh, uh, on an FM station, I think, and yeah. away you sit out in the hill and you listen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. And uh, you getting escorted off the ground by police back in the day at Paran, that's, uh, you know, not, not that you were ever angry in your career. Why, why would something like that have happened? I don't know. I, I don't know what happened that day, but I refused to leave the ground and um, because I felt I'd been sent off unfairly. I didn't even know there was a send-off rule in the VFA. And all of a sudden, a couple of horses arrived at my side <laughs> and said, come on, you're coming off with us. And I said, what, are you going to drag me off? You're drag me in some stirrups behind the horse or something? And so they marched me off the ground. It was a, it was a little bit embarrassing. I think it was Simon Lo uh, Matty Lloyd's brother, Simon Lloyd. Hello, Simon. Yeah, yeah and uh, I'd headbutted him. And, uh, oh, poor Simon. And, uh, One of the nicest ones yeah, you ever meet yeah, as well. Hell of a nice guy. And I think I'd give him a couple of headbutts and he wasn't happy with it. And anyway, the, the, the umpire spoke at three-quarter time and said, no, he's got to go. But they hadn't told me I had to go, so. That is gold, mate. Mm. Oh, well, there's some there's some beautiful days there. Now onto the media. Now onto the – this is – this is whatever. Well, this is what I know you as. This one of the greatest commentators I've ever seen. Um, you're now at seven. You've done it all, really. I mean, before we say where it starts, but what what is it with you, Triple M? Like, I, I find Triple M 
no no disrespect to Seven, by the way. You do, you do a yeah. great job on Seven. But when I'm driving and I tune into you and the lads on Triple M, I just find it ridiculously entertaining. Uh, and I just would love to, me personally and selfishly, would just love to watch TV and then slot in Triple M mm. audio because you, it's like there's a, there's a, I don't know, there's some chemistry in that room. Yeah. You're allowed to have more fun. What's the difference between national TV and I guess national radio? Well, national TV, you are, you are broadcasting to a very broad demographic and very broad audience. Kids from, you know, three or four years of age to, to grandpas and grandmas at 90 years of age. So it's a broad demographic. So therefore, um, what you say has got to fit everybody. It can't just fit the demographic that we're broadcasting to on Triple M, which is young guys like yourself, males predominantly under 40 years of age in their garage, you know, going to the footy, sitting in the car park, watching the footy, whatever. That is a very specific demographic that sort of get it. So that that's the main difference. And that's and and that's why Triple M is a little more liberal in 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 the way we go about it. I mean, we genuinely get together. We we will walk into the studios on a Saturday morning. Uh, or the commentary box on a Saturday or a Sunday, and we will get there and we'll genuinely not know what we're going to talk about. We will have a very brief conversation as a group outside over a coffee or or whatever, and we'll you know we'll tell each other what we've done the night before or the week of. You know, duck, I heard you during the week were doing this, this, and this, or or Damo, I heard you were sniffing around here at this, and we just have a general chat, and then that general chat would then say, okay, guys, run air now, let's go, bang, and that general chat would then transform to on air. And we just, and that's why I think people sort of um, uh, gravitated to it because it was like they were there having a discussion with us. And it wasn't, we weren't like these figures that were bigger or better than anyone else. We were part of what they, their discussion was. So if you were sitting home in your shed or sitting in the car park watching the local footy around the ground, you would feel like you're in the discussion. And that wasn't by design or anything. That's just the nature in which these guys, you know, talk to each other. We would we would do our best to hang shit on anyone in the team that we knew that had done something that was big headed or childish or silly. <clears throat> that was always the aim. You'd come in and you whisper to each other, hey, uh, you know, a Spud today. We found out that he bloody tried something down the down the shop the other <laughs> week, or you know, Duck's been you know he's been caught out again, or you know, Mother's Day was busy today because he had to visit three of his girlfriends. What <laughs> <laughs> whatever it was, you know, um, and that's why. It, sort of translated, but we're able to do that because it was a very specific audience. Yeah, and it sounds like that. And um, Jimmy Brayshaw, you and Jimmy Brayshaw, you yeah. guys like the chiefs of the, of the Well, show? James Brayshaw is the boss. He's the chairman. He's the one that uh, uh, says whether we can or can't. Um, he's, uh, he's you know, full of himself, Jim, but uh, <laughs> uh, other than that, he's fantastic. He's a, he's a guy that makes everyone around him better. So he's the guy that creates this environment, by the way. Um, and that's what's so good about James Brayshaw. He is, he, it doesn't matter where he goes, he makes sure his number one thing is to make people in that team around him better. And we were all better as a result of him being there. And I think if every host went to whatever program they did with that in mind to make the people better around them, not to make themselves better, but uh, to get the best out of them. Gary Lyon was another great guy at doing that. He would know which buttons to push to get me in a bad mood or a good mood. And, uh, and he would know that about everybody, everybody in the team. So that's what makes these guys such great entertainers. And, you know, I owe a lot to Gary and JB in particular and even Eddie Maguire as well in the, in the earlier days at Triple M did the first 10 years with Eddie because I was a founding member of the Triple M footy team. Remember, Triple M coming into footy, it was very much an AM scene and this – 
all of a sudden this FM station going to start broadcasting footy. It was unheard of because FM stations were for music. They were for very, very young people, and all of a sudden we're going to broadcast uh, uh, a footy on the FM band. It was a very, very risky business. took 20 years to get going. Eddie, myself, Quarters, uh, a few others were instrumental in that first 15 years of, of getting that Triple M footy going. Mm. Yeah, it is amazing, actually, when you think about that, because it's AM and FM, and like you said, with music, but mm. Triple M uh, with the lads, it does, and Jay-Z, I must say, Jay-Z cops it, he's the bunny, isn't he? Let's yeah. be, he, he's <laughs> the guy that you do, Jay-Z in the back there, and he's just, yeah. he's a bit of a pecking order, it seems. There is a pecking order, definitely, and uh, Jay-Z's sort of coming in <laughs> and he's working his way up, but while he's working his way up, we can have as many pot shots as we want at Jay-Z, and anything that goes wrong, it's Jay-Z, but he's a great guy. He's a great young reporter, and he is going to be uh, comparing his own show at, at some stage. So, you know, we always have those guys. We had Doc Larkins we used to get into, was yep. great doctor, but we used to love hanging shit on him. It was absolutely fantastic. Spud then came along as well, and, and Duck for all of, it, all, 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 all of the things that Duck gets up to. It's, it's just great for us to investigate all of those things because they're interesting. And, Plenty of material, yeah, isn't there? It's just like you going into your shed in the morning and talking to your mates about what you did the night before or what you're going to do tonight. That's exactly what we did. Yeah, it is great. And who's the uh, who's the best you've you know who's the best you've seen in the in the Triple M box? You reckon who's the one guy that you just well probably Spud because he had an insatiable thirst to get on air and and have secrets about one of us and not tell us, but he would always put the um, the punchline would would always come out before it should have, and he'd always stuff up the joke. So Spud was a beauty, but the probably the best guy overall at setting up that whole Triple M vibe and um, giving everyone sort of nicknames, you know, and and giving them the part in the Triple M pie was probably Gary Lyon. He was the master at, at setting it all up and getting guys without even knowing to play particular roles, you know, to push my button and get angry and and, and then to <laughs> push Spud's button to spill the beans on, you know, an all-Australian meeting that he'd just been to or, <laughs> or, or, or whatever it was. He was he was an absolute genius at that. Yeah, that's good. I love that. I love it. I just, yeah, as I said, I'm a big fan of, the, of you boys. Uh, I wish I could just tune in while it's on TV. But, look, before we go to seven and, and a few things, highlights, how did it all start? Because a lot of people going through the ranks, they think, you know, you can't just be BT overnight. You've worked your absolute ass off to get to where you are now. Where did all this start? Obviously, you started with a little bit of a, you know, Herald yep. Sun article, the book that you Look, sold back in the day. It started in the last, I was a plumber, as I said. In the last couple of years at Collingwood, I realized I didn't want to be a plumber for the rest of my life. What else can I do? So I decided the media, and I looked at guys like Rex Hunt, um, Smokey Dawson, all these great commentators that had been in the business. And I said to myself, the one thing they all had in common, uh, Rex Hunt, um, Harry Beitzel, Smokey Dawson, Bruce McAvaney, Dennis Committee, the one thing they all had in common is they'd been working forever. And I thought, these guys have all been there for 20 years or more. And I'm thinking, what, what what's the thing they have in common? They all call the footy. They're not special comments guys. They call the footy. So straight away, I said to myself, I want long-term in here. I've got to be able to call the footy. If I'm a special comments guy, 
I'm the flavour of the month for one or two years and then I get the flick, unless you're Gary Lyon or someone that's really good at it. Dermot is another one. So you get the flick. You don't last very long. So the number one thing is I wanted to call. I remember I was at Collingwood and Lee Matthews' um, opinion of the media was not high. <laughs> and he said, anyone that's asked to do interviews, first of all, deny, uh, decline the opportunity, say you don't want to do it. If you have to do it, then make sure you lie. Don't tell the truth. Um, and I thought, hang on a minute. I'm going to accept any interview that comes my way as a rehearsal to show people in media land that I can do this. So it shows people that I can talk and I'm not just a plumber. So that's why I accepted them. And then this book was uh, that we spoke about earlier was really a really important part in giving me a bit of a push in as well and probably got my first job at 3UZ where I was doing um, a 10.30 till midnight shift um, and then I was doing a 5am uh, to 7am shift as well. And I remember I, I remember. I on that particular night or those night shows, we had this young producer by the name of Matty Weiss, who's now the executive director of um, of Cricket on Fox, and he's an absolute superstar. He was Bruce McAvaney's right-hand man there for a while as well. I remember he, he's a ripper guy, Matty, and uh, we, would, we were getting the biggest stars in the world. So we were on at this incredible hour, and we were getting – Carl Lewis had just won insane. four gold medals at the L.A. Um, Olympic Games, like uh, uh, Ben Johnson had just been um, caught cheating with drugs and won the 100 metres at the Olympic Games. Uh, Flojo had won the 100 at the women's. Um, Evander Holyfield had just won the World Championship. We've got him on the line. We're interviewing him. Thomas the Hitman Hearns, we're interviewing um, Nadia Comaninch, the first uh, Olympic gymnast to score the perfect 10. We're getting all these superstars and Matty Weiss is getting all these guys and everyone's wondering how the hell we're getting them. And um, he went on to be fantastic. And that sort of catapulted us a, a little bit as well. Um, we did some fairly unusual tricks to get all these guys, <laughs> but Matty was a, a beauty at what it. What were some tricks? Give us some uh, tricks. It's not, not really can we... Um, can we can we sort of say exactly what we did, but um, because it probably wouldn't be accepted today. Oh, well, but we told a lot of lies about <laughs> who we were and who we were broadcasting to to get these athletes. And um, so yeah, so it was that was the start of it. And then I got going at um, on the radio doing some footy calling. Um, I was just calling. I was a special comments guy in this particular game, and the guy said to me, "Do you want to call call for a minute?" I said, yeah, I'll call. So 30 seconds you'd give me and just that's how it sort of started and away it went. I became a commentator within uh, within months of, of taking it up. So, And from there became a founding member of the Triple M team, which I mentioned to you, and then got into TV through the Channel 9 Sunday footy show, which I was on for 15 years, then went to Fox, Foxtel, did some TV work there, and then ultimately Channel 7 where I am now. So It's a, it's an amazing story. Yeah. It's it's fantastic. The thing that I loved about it, what was the station called again when you started? 3UZ. I loved, I listened to a little clip and you've got- this 3UZ, is a, the good sports. Yeah, and, and and when you get, Carl Lewis, uh, you, you go, can you just say this for him? What did you say? You just say you got the advertiser and you, you made yeah. him do it. It's brilliant. <laughs> it's ahead of your time again. Oh, I can remember we did, we, we actually, there was one interview with some incredible athlete. It might've been bloody Carl Lewis or George Foreman or someone like that. And I couldn't be there for the interview. And I said to Maddie, my producer, I said, mate, you do the interview and then what we'll do is I'll come in the next day and we'll cut my questions into it. So it sounds like I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah. And so he did the interview with Buddy. I forget who it was. It might have been George Foreman actually. No, it wasn't no, it wasn't George Foreman. It was um it was it must have been Carl Lewis or someone big. I can't remember. 
And I said, and so the next day, I, I he'd done the interview, and I come in and cut all my questions in as if I'd done the interview. So some of these things you do is the producers they can do anything. The the man behind the buttons they're yeah. weapons. These folks, yeah, they are. Ah, oh, fuck, that's very good. That's um now on your calling. I, as I said, I I'm not biased. I, I do believe you're the best. You're the most exciting. You know, you get blokes off their seat. You clearly have an appetite for forwards and uh, blokes that might do some strange things or yeah. kick some exciting goals. The X factor. Um. Your best call yet. If you just think, bang, what's the best call you've done? Mm. What do you mean, moment or game? Both. Let's go yeah, just yeah. front of mind, BT. Um, probably. the Look, I am a caller that gets carried by the emotion of the game. So I'm not a caller that turns up with 13 um, A4 pieces of paper in front of me to blurt out information on people. That's what McAvaney has done. That's what other players, other other commentators in our team do. And that's good because that serves a purpose for them. But I'm one that just goes to the footy and gets caught in the emotion. And I go with the ebbs and flows of the game. So that's that's how I operate. So to be, emo- I would say I'm incredibly emotionally linked to what's happening at the moment. And I do remember in the, in the 16 grand final when the Bulldogs won and Boyd kicked the goal. No. You know, and and that that bit of audio was just very natural. It was what I thought at the time, and I think it was what everyone watching the game was thinking at the time. Jesus, they have won the game, the Bulldogs. Like this is unbelievable. They haven't won a premiership for years since bloody Charlie Sutton played. <laughs> um, you know, so that was probably the best moment. Best games. I mean, I you could look just at the Collingwood game the other day. So I was going to say, there's been some crackers. Like, you know, it wasn't a great first quarter, probably not even a great second quarter, but a great second half. Um, you know, there have been many, many games like that that uh, I remember calling. The one thing I do know about calling is you you rarely – I can't – I don't think I've ever called the perfect game. I've never walked I've away – this a bit. Yeah, I've never walked away thinking that I nailed it today. And, um, you know, you always you say, oh, jeez, I got that wrong or I got that stat wrong or I got that information wrong or I, or I didn't call that player, you know, who he was. And I think that's that's the thing you aim to do. Um, player identification is really hard, Tom, because you guys are uh, are on the field and w- the cameras for the footy are on one side of the ground. So if you're all running towards the wing and where we are commentating, we can't see any numbers. So I have to know that that is Tom Sheridan because of his hair, because of the way he runs, because of his tattoo, because of his bandage on his shoulder, whatever identifying characteristic it is, you've got to know all that as well. So that's the number one thing, getting getting players right, and that's a really hard thing to do in every game. In fact, I don't think there's a game that I've done where I've got every player right on every occasion. Do you think you get caught up in that stuff though? Like for me, I I, I, I don't think. Well, me personally, don't I don't really. No, nah, yeah. I don't worry. I'm more like your excitement. You know, you can name them, like Leon Davis back in the day. Yeah. You just you just know that when but he kicks something it's- on social media, and I don't read a lot of it. But you know, after you've done it, go, ah, oh, yeah, buddy. You know, it's not him, it's him. You know, and I'm thinking, oh well, uh, yeah, there's does a it really matter. Nah, but I think those people like they're writing that. I mean, mm. there's always feedback for them. They've got you yeah. know, what are they? How are they going? You know, yeah, it's a yeah. bit of a reflection on them. But I think that the excitement, like the boy goal, it's funny. I was just about to ask you about that because I mean me and Tony Armstrong have reenacted this on the, the uh, Tony Armstrong we've done a um, Dylan Friends podcast and we spoke about how big that moment was Which, and, oh the Boyd moment yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah the Tom Boyd moment yeah. Um, yeah, and that just, was, just the fact that you're like fuck and we're just I don't know everyone was probably thinking mm. it you said it was well, I thought it? I was going to get the sack yeah so what, what happened after that well, did nothing, they love it uh, yeah they loved it they said that, <laughs> you know the, I think the, um, the the head of the station said no that's exactly the way everyone felt yeah right and so he said uh, that sort of stuff is okay if it's in context 
<laughs> and uh, mind you, no one's no one's gone on to risk it since. Um, so it, it's it's just once every ten years for yeah, something like that. I special think special moments it's, only. It's got to be genuine. But uh, no, the vibes the vibes really good and love calling footy. And um, it's a bloody hard thing to do to please everybody. Um, and uh, that's what I guess you're trying to do on Channel Seven, whereas on Triple M, you're just trying to you're just trying to please that very core group of male listeners, I guess, to a certain degree. You've spoken so highly of Bruce McAvaney, and he's spoken highly of you when he just you know was inducted in I think the Hall of Fame or whatever it was. Um, well, what is it with Bruce? What is it that he obviously makes you better? Yeah, there's an aura mm. about him. He's obviously got a huge appetite for the knowledge of the game and every game, and not just game, but it's every you know all the sports, the Olympics. Doesn't matter what it is, he's all over it. What is it about Bruce? Well, he sets the standards in all areas. So he sets the standards in you know player identification, like I was talking, in 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 information, in statistics, in behaviour, in appearance, um, in in camaraderie, in being the team leader. He sets all the standards on these things, and that's why he's so brilliant. You know, when I'm calling a game and he's rubbing my back, you know, almost caressing my back, as if to say, Brian, you're going really well. <laughs> you know, and, you, and, he, and he's sort of massaging you into this performance, and um, that's what he is. And, Brian, there's a big moment coming up. I want you to call it. And away you go, you know, because he almost pushes you to the microphone. This this give, give first before get uh, mentality that Bruce has, this coaching mentality that Bruce has, this wise head before the game where he gathers the team in and he has a bit of an informal chat and says, well, this might happen today or we might do it this way or watch out for this young guy. I've been watching him for years. You know, and 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 and, and just he's, what he's doing, he's sucking you into his vortex of brilliance and uh, everyone then gets a little piece out of that. Everyone has learned something off Bruce and uh, – to, to, to be honest with you, you know, uh, I, I learned more in the two or three years at the end that I called with Bruce than I probably had in the 30 years leading up to that. Um, he's such a good coach, such a good teacher, such a good person, yeah. just a ripper guy. I wouldn't know, even of the current footballers, never mind the footballers of the last 30 years, anyone that wouldn't want the opportunity to sit down one-on-one -on -one with Bruce and talk to him for an hour. It would be a masterclass. I know that he talks every year when he was hosting the Brownlow. He would ring up the top dozen Brownlow favourites and he would go and interview them for an hour. He would sit down in a coffee shop with Tom Sheridan and he would say, right, Tom, tell me about yourself. And he'd go through the whole life in preparation that he might, might be interviewing you at the end of Brownlow night. Yeah, right. That was the sort of extent that he went to. Um, you know, he... I turn up at the footy and call the footy. He turns up on Monday morning, works Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, before he gets to the footy, gathering information. And that's probably why I don't have to gather as much because if I'm sitting next to him or Hamish McLaughlin or whoever it is, I know that they've done a lot of work and all I need to be is myself. They're going to they're gonna provide the the other stuff that goes with a game of footy. So, yeah, Bruce is not just um, not just a great footy commentator. He's He, he really is in the, in the top one or two commentators in the world um, doing what he does. He shows that when he does athletics and, you know, races. I mean, we don't see him call Melbourne Cups anymore, but he used to, and he's he's as good as anyone calling it. 
is oh, mate, it's spot on. It's it's a skill and the preparation he clearly puts into it. Now preparation is like you said. There's two different roles and you play a different one and you're a, you're an emotional guy. I've seen your work because we've caught up for a coffee and you've showed me the famous you know little was it like the wooden little board with the trend oh, yes. and you've done it for twenty yes. odd years. Do you want to explain what that is and and maybe a little insight on who you think might take out the flag off the back of uh, you know your little trends yeah. your friend? Type? Oh look, it's now published in the age. In fact, they. You know, I should have got copyright on it because they pinched it off me. I but didn't it's, know that. it's the red and the green chart in the age that you would see, and it and it shows the teams that are in the order down the left column where they finished the last year in in order, and then basically going off to the right are a number of boxes which I either paint um, red for a loss or green for a win. It's that simple, and that way you've got this in front of you. You've got this one piece of cardboard that's in front of you, and it has the whole season's results on it. Um, and also the season before you can look at as well. You can see you can see characteristics. You can see um, you know rhythms that appear. You'll see that Collingwood have won you know twelve in a row or whatever it is. And 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 I really look for this time of the year. I look for the last month of the year. I look for as many green squares in the last month of the year because I reckon premierships are won by the team that's in form in the last month or six weeks of the year. And that's the, they're the columns that really matter to me is to is to make sure teams are winning and in, in really good form at the end of the year. And I, uh, you're right, I have these sheets dating back 20 years. Um, I saw them in a commentary box when a guy was over here doing a state game, a guy, a great commentator from WA by the name of George Grilicic, and he had it in the box next to me, and I took a photo through the window without him knowing, <laughs> and so I sort of copyrighted it off him. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's a really important sheet. It's the only bit of information I have sitting in front of me for every game that I commentate. And it's got it all there, which yeah. is what it's, what's yeah. why it's so good. Mm. I was lucky enough um, to sneak into the com- – you got me up in the commentary box. I think Hayden Crozier was playing his first game and um I, you know it was an it was an experience that so you, you've got such great support all around you you know you're obviously calling the game i remember sitting behind you and feeding you a little bit of uh, telling you that hayden crozier's got the cheese grater it's very funny actually because all the boys afterwards are going what the what what was bt going on about but um there's the guys on the right they've got the stats coming through there's a lot going on isn't there so, how many yeah. people would you say is in the box when you're commentating when you're commentating there's probably about 10 people in the box with you but there's probably and there's another 50 in the semi trailer which is down under the mcg or marvel um, that are in the broadcast van. So while we have those people in the box with us, you know, floor managers, statisticians, all of that sort of thing, cameramen, uh, there are another 50 that have access to you via comms through your ears. So you can actually be calling the, you know, the ball's on the half forward flank. And while the, while you're actually ca- saying the ball's on the someone's speaking to you in your right ear saying, Brian, um, by the way, he's kicked three goals today. So you've got that information, bang. So there's these brilliant people that work down in the truck that are continually supplying information, not just the statisticians, but the directors will say, <clears throat> you know, if you're if you're talking about um, if you're talking about Lockie Neal, um, the director will then find a shot of Lockie Neal, whether he's just walking or whether he's in the back standing next to his opponent, you know, because the picture will then marry up with the story. So directors are great, or you can go to a director before the game and say, hey, today I'm going to talk about. Um, Tom Sheridan and this matchup with this guy, you know, they're, they're brilliant runners. Can you get me a shot of those two guys? Because um, I'm going to talk about it. And so he'll make sure he gets it. So it's a real team thing. And he'll hit the button through your ears and say, Brian, that shot of Tom Sheridan's coming up shortly. Um, here it comes and bang. So you can you know, lead you on. Yeah, good yeah, chemistry. Yeah. yeah. And I, I learned say. that off Dennis Cometti. Dennis Cometti would come to a game with 20, a list of 20 things. And I'd hear him talking to the director and say, today we need these 20 shots. 
And I go, Jesus, that's that's forward planning. That's great thinking. Yeah. yeah. And that's what adds to the entertainment, I guess, yeah. when people are watching. I mean, we've only got a little bit before you go, but yeah, there's some funny media stories that we've dived in. There's two that I want to quickly get into. The family trip to LA, like you, you mentioned, you went to uh, America, but you've gone to the Lakers game with uh, your 18-year-old son at the time, Ryan, and snuck into the locker room and interviewed Kobe Bryant. How, how did you manage to do that? Well, we uh, I'd got tickets on the basis that I was representing, I was, I was there for the media. So I was there working when I wasn't, you know, I just wasn't working with the media. But that was how we got really good tickets. And I remember we, and, you know, on the note it said, now be at the lockers uh, door, uh, the LA Lakers lockers door at uh, whatever time it was, and then we'll, you know, do the thing. I rolled up, I rolled up there, and the guy said to me, "He said, look, we're going to be opening in about ten minutes." He said, "Where are you from?" I said, "I'm from Australia." He said, "Well, you, I had nothing on me. I didn't have a pen or a pad or a tape or anything." And so I thought, "Shit!" So I rushed up to the LA Lakers bloody fan store up the top, brought a pen and a bit of paper, you know, just to make it look like I really was there to do media, just in case. Anyway, got back to the locker rooms, and the guy said, "Right, we're opening the doors now." And there was about ten people. You can come in. You've got twenty minutes. You can talk to any player you want. Go and just go. And and I'm standing there just looking because I didn't want to talk to anyone. I just wanted to look, you know, and see Kobe and, you know, all these guys. I'm thinking, geez, this is great. And the guy, the media guy can't. He said, well, who do you want to talk to? I said, oh, well, who do you think? He said, well, Kobe's over there. Go and sit next to him. So I go over and sit there and I'm thinking, shit, now I've got to ask him proper media <laughs> questions. And I've got my little shitty Lakers notepad <laughs> with my little shitty Lakers pen. And I'm, I'm, you know, pretending I'm doing shorthand, which I can't do. I've got no idea. I'm just doing bloody strokes and crosses and hashtags. And um, and got over there and interviewed him. It was one of the best moments of my life, sitting there 45 minutes before Kobe played a game for a 10-minute interview with Kobe, asking him whatever I want and he was relaxed, putting his shoes on at the time, relaxed, um, uh, incredibly giving, um, you know, gave me yeah. everything I want, wasn't a smart ass, wasn't a big head, um, didn't disrespect, you know, he he just did it like a professional, um, which bloody staggers me in our game that yeah, you funny. guys will not- They don't put me in that category because yeah. I'm, I'm of the belief like you, they should open the locker room oh. up and give them the 10-minute window because they build, they get more media and it builds the game. It's amazing. There's a great story, F1s. I'm a, I'm a Formula One fanatic. Um, 10 or 15 years ago, Fernando Alonso, world champion, has a huge crash at Albert Park. He spirals through the air in the car, does about 13 flips, almost killed, right? 15 minutes later, he's back in the pits doing an international press conference. So here's a guy almost killed when his car sidewind through the air that 15 minutes later can be doing a press conference to the world. Yet when, when, um, when you know, Jordan Dugowie pulls his hamstring – uh, after the game, we're not allowed to talk to him because he's got a hamstring injury. He doesn't talk with his hand. Why can't we talk to him? I can understand if a player's got concussion, but if he's broken his finger or he's hurt his shoulder or he's hurt his ribs, why can't we talk to them? You go into the rooms and these media people say, oh, no, you can't talk to him. He's done his That's hamstring. That's the problem, though. They're, they're the guys. They're the handbrake. So they go, the club would say, don't you know, do this. Do A bit like Lee Matthews. Mm. Lie or not. They wouldn't say lie, yeah. but they're like, you know, just play a straight bat. Yeah. And then the media guy is accountable. So if they do something, then he's whipping them because yeah. it's his job on the line and they need to just let it go, yeah. open what, it up. What they need to understand is they need to think that the uh, two or three billion that they get paid, the that's why players have incredible incomes for a short time. They get that money because of the broadcast rights, not because of um, NAB sponsoring or anything over here. We're, we're talking billions as against millions in sponsorship, Right. So it is the billions that 
props up the game and pays the players and pays the wages of all these people. Make no mistake about that. They need to think about that so and give us access. Uh, broadcasters are screaming for access, uh, particularly after the game, a little bit before the game as well. Um, and I just can't believe that they wouldn't look at that and go, "Well, yeah, they're, they're, they're the ones paying our wages. Let's let's get this right for them." Yeah, we're yeah. not we're not looking to to get anything that we shouldn't get. We're just looking to interview a player. You know, yeah. Game. I mean, that, that whole roaming thing after the game. It's the boys look stunned, don't they? They don't. It's just nonsense. Like you know, they're so worried. But worried about what? Number one, your team's just won, and the hardest question in this whole roaming segment is going to be. Gee, you kicked four day four goals today, Walter. You played well, didn't you? That's the hardest question. <laughs> it's not like some forensic examination into what happened. I would have loved you to come up to me. I never got the chance. You know when you you think I'm going to get interviews after the game? Never got a chance. But I just don't know why blokes they shit themselves a bit. They should yeah. just relax and just give you a bit of personality. Yeah, that's and, all you want. Uh, you know, that's all you want is a little bit of personality on who they are. You don't even really want to know too much about the game. I know. You know, and players can turn that around very quickly. You know, if I ask a serious question about Jesus, um, you you you, you spend a lot of time at full forward today. Yeah, love full forward. I've always wanted to play at full forward. Jeez, give me another chance. How was that wrong? Yeah, I know. And, the, and the boys would love it as well mm. if they did. They go back yeah. on their phones and watch it. Um, before we get to the Rickson retirement segment and wrap up, because I know you've got to shoot, but the Toyota Tour, the famous Toyota Tour mm. with Paddy Dangerfield. I remember this when I was a youngster because Jordan filled me in and said, oh, you wouldn't believe what my old man's been up to. But there's a little bit of a story there because his old man did pull you aside before that and said, hey, listen here, the, uh, Patrick doesn't drink and you're going to be accountable to this. And you looked him in the eye and said, no worries. I remember because the bus left at seven o'clock in the morning. This was, Toyota Tour was a, a tour that, um, a tour of the rural areas of Victoria. We had a bus with 10 players on it and we'd go around and do clinics and all of these country areas that otherwise wouldn't get it. We'd go to every Toyota dealer in the state and uh, we, we would have these players come and talk to their clients and sign autographs and photos. It was just great for the country folk. They absolutely loved it and the players loved doing it as well. And I remember the bus was leaving to leave at 7 a.m. from Toyota headquarters in Port Melbourne, and we'd be on the road for the next 10 days. And I remember the last person to roll up, we're all on the bus waiting, and, you know, it's early and everyone's a bit tired. And the last person to turn up with Paddy Dangerfield, and he was very, very young at the time. And I thought, must not have had his license or something, because his dad drove him to the bus. And Paddy got on the bus and puts his bag in the bottom of the bus, and, and his dad comes up to me and says, Now, uh, you look after Paddy. He's, you know, he doesn't drink, and, you know, he's a good boy and doesn't do all these things. And so you just, you, you know, you're going to be responsible. And, and, and if anything gets out of hand, I will be holding you responsible. <laughs> and uh, I said, yeah, no worries. No, nothing like that will happen. And anyway, I did, you know, great days where I do remember on about the second night, Paddy standing on the pool table at this pub yelling and yahooing, having the, having, <laughs> having the time of his absolute life. But it was, uh, it was interesting. Great tours they were. Yeah. That is great. Now, look, I know you got to go. I've got a thousand more. Um, I've got to, we'd have to do a part two because I've got so many more questions. This quick Tommy's 10. Ready? You've got to answer these quickly yes. and then we go to the Rickson retirement. The last time you shaved your moustache? Uh, about 20 years ago. Favourite son and it can't be your dog? Um, Favourite son. Don't have one. At <laughs> Least favourite son. <laughs> have, have four of them. <laughs> <laughs> Most exciting AFL player in the competition at the moment. Uh, right at the moment, I would say, gee, um, Jordan Degoe, perhaps for me. I love him, love the way he plays, love the X Factor nature about him. Probably him. 
Favourite ex-AFL player that you loved watching? Uh, Leon Davis, loved him. These happen yeah. to be all Collingwood people, but uh, <laughs> loved loved Leon Davis. Could you dominate modern day footy? And, and Jake Stringer. Yeah, the package. Could you dominate modern day footy if you're in your prime right now? Uh, uh, what I will say about us versus current is I would say that if we were trained professionally like they are today, then the we are all there because we're good at football, right? So it's just the athleticism part that you've got to add to the game by really training hard and training training smart like you do now. I would I would think that eighty percent of former footballers would be good footballers in today's game if they were trained the same way. Great answer. Coolest person you've had dinner with? Uh, Jesus, coolest person I've had dinner with um, or met. If it's easier. Uh, oh, well, Kobe Bryant was pretty good. Hulk Hogan was someone that I, you know, yeah. I met him. He was he was pretty cool. Um, Muhammad Ali, perhaps as well. So I met a lot of famous people. What's the best advice you've got for young people? Uh, to to not stop knocking on the door. So if you want to do what I do or do what you do, Tom, people have just got to knock the door down. And I literally mean knock the door down. They will say no to you and they will say no again and they'll say come another day. Make sure you come that other day. Love it. What's the worst advice you've ever received? Um, worst advice is to be a plumber. <laughs> <laughs> and your best catchphrase whilst commentating, your go-to. Um, my go-to is probably probably wowee, probably wowee. Oh boy, I love that. Oh one. boy, wowee! <laughs> Goodness gracious me! <laughs> right, uh, the Rick's in retirement. Like always, you, the guests that come on, they you know these, like, these glasses are famous. <laughs> the Grands, they're uh, they're named from the New York you know streets. These are the gloss black, green polarized lenses. Throw them on, mate. Um, for everyone listening, yeah, Rick's, so Rick's this is going really well. I've heard so much about Rick's. They are. Absolutely. Do you make like fishing glasses where you can see into the water as well? We have, well, they're polarized lenses, which is what fishermen right. um, want, but we're predominantly fashion. So you can go elsewhere for, for fishing. Jeremy Cameron still wears them while he fishes. That You reckon they're Does that he? good? Yeah, he loves them. No, I've heard so much about these. I've worn a couple of pairs of them. They are absolutely Jeez, you're looking sharp. Look, you're ready to, are you going to the races this year? Oh, I am going to the races well, have on to the be, 1st of October, actually. Well, you so. have to throw the grands on. And everyone listening, like always... Head online and use the discount code ACES for 20% off if you want to look like the Briss in the Grands. Look at that, a million bucks. Now, um, I must say, Rick's retirement's probably, I haven't, you know, not being rude, you're probably one of the oldest guys I've, I've you know, I've asked this one. But Really? Yeah, but- I'm one of the oldest guys you've interviewed. I think so, yeah. Jeez, I'm not that old. I, can you keep them on, Briss? Because oh, I yeah. want you to, sorry, mate, but I just want you to, the reason I want it, I, I know where you live, Lawn, you've got a beautiful mm. new house there. Yeah. I'm imagining that that is where you're going to retire, but- yep. So is that where you see yourself finishing up? Is there any appetite to go back to WA? Where is it that BT would like to put his ricks on and retire once commentating is all done? Uh, the, these ricks would suit the beaches of WA. I can see that and the and the casual living over there. But I've finished with WA. Nothing happens over there. It's boring as batshit. <laughs> um, so I'm a Vic, Victorian person and definitely have, have retired, not retired yet, but I will retire to Lawn. I love Lawn. Another place I could retire is Mansfield. I could go to Mansfield. I love little country towns like that. Um, so, yeah, so definitely Lawn at this stage. And what is it about Lawn? The office. We know it's um, a famous one. You've been so good to me growing up. I didn't have time to, you know, tell you the things that we're going to do another one. But, you know, back in the day, you used to take a lot of us down there to the beach house. What is it with Lawn that you fell in love with out of all the places you could have, you know, maybe purchased a house and settled up in? Because one minute it's busy and it's got 10,000 people in the town and it's, it's wow, let's go out and have a drink tonight or let's go and go to the beach. And the next minute, no one's there and it's complete 
isolation. And that's what I, that's what comes to lawn. So you get, you know, you get four or five months of, of no one being there. And then the other, the other months of it being absolutely chock-a-block. So it's got a bit of buzz. We live just out of town. So if you want to go into town and get the buzz, you can, or you can stay out in the forest and, and be a loner, whichever way you want to do it, it offers that. And is Steve Perry, is he still down there, the great man? Steve Perry is, uh, he, he comes in and out, a former fullback at the Tigers, of course. He comes in and out uh, down there and sort of swans in and then uh, we call him Spook because he just sort of disappears in there. <laughs> and what about uh, Mickey Turner, the great man? He's the, uh, the other man that used to sit yes. there in, in the office. Is he still flooding around? Geelong Falcons regional manager for over 30 years, I think. <laughs> he's uh, he's retired down there. Mickey's bored. We're trying to get him the job of the local parking cop because we, he's a very oh, officious sort of guy and he would he would upset so many people and write out so many tickets that the whole town would hate him. So, no, we're trying to get him that job down there. He's a beauty. Oh, that's great. Well, look, Bruce... Um Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Like I said, I've got a thousand more questions, but it's AFL finals. It doesn't get any bigger for you. You've got a, uh, you've got a weekend off, um, but I just wanted to say thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it and uh, all the best with the calls over the next month because no doubt there might be another Tom Boyd because this season's been unbelievable so far. Yeah, looking forward to another game like we had last weekend, so can't wait for it to get started. Thank you, Tommy. You're going very well with this Aces setup. so congratulations to you and keep on knocking the door down, mate. Thanks, man. I'm going to knock that door right over. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, please feel free to hit us up on our social channels at Osmerican Aces. If you're entertained, inspired, or feel more educated, please share it with your friends and family because we appreciate the support. Righto. Catch you on the next one.